Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. Welcome to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm Scott Steele, the chairman of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And today we're going to talk a little bit about colon polyps. And I'm very pleased to have a mentor, a friend, and a wonderful member of the Department of Colorectal Surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. James Church. Hi, Scott. So uh, for the guests out there, obviously, I wish I had time to read all the things that you've done. Books, hundreds of manuscripts published, spoke all over the world, probably one of the leading colon polyp and expert endoscopists in the nation, or if not the world. But tell our listeners a little bit more about you. I'm really just a simple guy from New Zealand. <laughs> That's where I was born and brought up and went to medical school and surgical training. And then the opportunity came to do a fellowship here at the Cleveland Clinic. At that time, Dr. Fazio was the chair. Uh, there was another Australian and an Englishman here, and so we formed a little British Commonwealth section. And after a couple of years, they asked me to stay permanently. And so the opportunities offered here at Cleveland were so much better than anywhere else in the world that I couldn't resist. And so that was 34 years ago, <laughs> and the rest is history. Well, we're glad that you're still here. And so we're going to talk a lot about colon pump, something that you know very well, something that you've studied in depth and taken care of for many years. And so I think the first and foremost thing is, what, what is a colon polyp? Well, the word polyp just means a lump, and in particular, a lump on a lining. So many organs can get polyps, and I'm sure people are familiar with polyps in the nose, polyps in the stomach, polyps in the mouth. But we're talking about the colon and rectum, which also have a lining, and so polyps in the colon and rectum have a particular significance for us as colorectal surgeons and for our patients. So how does a polyp develop? So polyps develop because cells grow faster than they should, and there are a variety of reasons for that, and in particular in the context of colon cancer, it's because of genetic abnormalities in the cells. But sometimes cells just overgrow because of dietary reasons or other random reasons, and anything that will cause an overgrowth of cells will potentially produce a polyp. There's a lot of different type of polyps, but if you can, can you, we clump them into a certain way and say, what are the ones that are a little bit more worrisome or what are the ones that are a little bit more routine? Really, the most important way of categorizing polyps is those that have something to do with cancer, so potentially precancerous polyps, and those that are never going to turn into cancer. So the medical term for that would be non-neoplastic or neoplastic polyps. And so what are some routine names and things that would go along? I, I know a lot of times people may know a cousin or a brother or a family member or a friend that might get a scope or get something done, they come back and they have a polyp. Or is there ones that are more common than others? Well, the commonest precancerous polyp is called an adenoma, which relates to its origin from the glandular cells of the colon. There's another type of precancerous polyp called serrated polyps, which relates to the way that the cells look under the microscope. It kind of looks like the teeth of a saw. And those are the two most important types of polyps because both of those can turn into cancer and they're the ones that put us at higher risk of getting more polyps in the future and if they're not looked after or removed then even a cancer. So one of the things that comes up all the time is is a polyp cancer or do all polyps go on to become cancers? I know you mentioned a precancerous and non-cancerous but that kind of the terminology gets confusing sometimes. It sure does. So a polyp we have to remember is just a description of a lump. So if there's a lump it's a polyp. So a polyp could be a cancer. It could be a polypoid cancer, which was a cancer that looks like a polyp. 
It could be cancer developing within a polyp. It could be a precancerous polyp, or it could be a benign, never going to turn to cancer polyp. And then we also have to remember in this context that sometimes cancers develop from a flat, what we would call lesion. So just if we're being true to the English definition of the word, a flat precancerous lesion is not really a polyp because it's not a lump. <laughs> but usually they get included in analyses and studies and in our talk about precancerous polyps, we usually mean the flat ones as well. But is it fair to say for most of the people out there, if you're talking about a polyp, you're not really talking about about cancer. You're more talking about the ones that are more of the benign or potentially precancerous lesions. Yes, that's true. But if you have a polyp taken off during colonoscopy, the first thing you want to know is, has it got cancer in it? Right. And then the second thing you want to know is, could this have turned into cancer had it not been taken off? So you mentioned a little bit about potentially how we detect polyps, but before we get there, do people, how do they know if they have polyps? Are there symptoms that may progress with polyps that patients should be aware of? Yes, almost all polyps start off small and get big. And the ability of a polyp to cause symptoms depends on its size largely, and then its position in critical areas in the colon. So small polyps are never going to cause symptoms, so you're never going to know. And as they get bigger, the incidence of bleeding, for example, or sometimes the colon thinks that a big polyp, and big I mean about an inch in diameter, is a piece of stool and tries to pass it, and that can cause cramping. It can also make the bleeding worse. And sometimes it can lead to obstruction if it's in a critical area of the bowel, say with diverticular disease. So the bigger polyps can certainly cause symptoms, the smaller ones are not. And so you can have a patient that is, is relatively asymptomatic. They may not have any symptoms at all. So that leads us right into saying, uh, how do we detect these polyps and when should we explore these different options? I should start off by just saying that it's really important to find these polyps because even though probably only about one in 200 of them ever going to turn into cancer, all cancers come from a precancerous polyp or lesion, all of them. So if we, by some magical process, could find all these polyps and take them all out, nobody would ever get colon or rectal cancer. So obviously that, that's not possible, but we can make a try at it. And so because polyps don't cause symptoms, we need to be screened. And so what do those screening involve? To find polyps, the, really the only way to do that is with a colonoscopy. And so there are lots of recommendations out there that recommend that average risk people with no family history and no past history of polyps or colon cancer start colonoscopic screening at age 50. So if it's not everybody, that's the average risk people, but for the patients listening out there who may have a cousin or a, an aunt that had a cancer, or what about somebody who's had somebody that's a little bit closer to them, a brother, a sister, or a mom, or a dad, do those recommendations vary at all? Yes, they certainly do, and they, they change because a family history alters your risk of getting colon polyps and colon cancer. And so the average population risk for colon cancer for people living in the United States for their lifetime is about 6%. If you have what we call a first-degree relative, that's a parent, a sibling, brother or sister, or a child with colorectal cancer, that risk goes up by two and a half times, so it goes up to 15%. And if that relative is younger than 50, it goes up fourfold. So that's 24% lifetime risk of getting colorectal cancer. And our advice is to talk about that to your family doctor and to make sure you get screened because there's nothing as tragic as somebody coming in to see us with colon cancer and they have a relative with it. 
So let's talk a little bit about the dreaded colonoscopy. I'm sure you have patients out there or you know of people that are like, I I'm not going to get one of those. I I I'm, I'm scared about that or do whatever. And you had mentioned that the best way to get evaluated and maybe even treated for these polyps so you can both diagnose them and treat them through the scope is a colonoscopy. Talk a little bit about a colonoscopy. For those people out there that are worried about a colonoscopy or maybe haven't gotten one, what does this bowel prep involve? What is a colonoscopy? What can they expect to feel and experience going through that entire process? It's probably more sensible to worry about getting colon cancer than it is to worry about getting a colonoscopy because colonoscopy is not going to kill you. It's 20 minutes out of your life, the actual exam, whereas colon cancer is very serious. So colonoscopy involves cleaning the colon out of stool, that's step one, and then having somebody who's very expert at the procedure pass a six foot long colonoscope up the colon. Generally you don't use all the six feet and then having gotten it all the way to the beginning of the colon you withdraw it gradually and do a good inspection of the lining and any polyps that are found can be taken out. As I said that usually takes about 20 to 30 minutes. Patients are generally sedated so they're kept comfortable and then afterwards they go home. So I know a lot of patients are more worried about the bowel prep itself than the colonoscopy. As a matter of fact, they'd say, I know that I'm going to get sedation for the colonoscopy in many cases, but they're so worried about the bowel prep. What do you say to those patients? There are lots of varieties of bowel prep out there now. I think if one of the bowel prep makers wanted to be the richest company in the world, they would invent a prep that people want to actually take <laughs> and enjoy taking and it tastes great. And we're getting there, really, believe it or not. The initial bowel preps for colonoscopy were a gallon of sort of weird tasting fluid. That That's you, what I took. Yeah, the to, salty fluid. <laughs> right. You have to drink over about four hours and a lot of people can't tolerate that. So uh, we've gone to lower volume preps and better tasting preps. The only caution I would give is that insurance coverage sometimes varies. But to me, it's worth paying a few extra dollars to get something that is tolerable. There's a lot of things in the media out there that suggest that you don't have to undergo a colonoscopy, that maybe you can undergo a CAT scan or something else, the virtual colonoscopy. What does that involve? And is that for everybody? The virtual colonoscopy is, as you said, Scott, using a CAT scan technology and using kind of space-age programming to reconstruct a three-dimensional model of the colon from the information that the CAT scan gives the computer. And then the operator can actually fly through the colon as if they were in a little submarine and look around and see if there are polyps. But there are some downsides to it. The colon still has to be cleaned out. It is quite intrusive for the patient because operators fill the colon up with gas, so a tube is put into the anus and the colon is pumped up with air. So it's not that comfortable. And then it is not that accurate, especially for small polyps, and you can't do anything about what you see. And so if that exam is positive, then the patient needs a colonoscopy as well. So what if the primary care doc said, you don't need to have a colonoscopy, we're going to do the shorter one, the flexible sigmoidoscopy. Is that still a useful tool? I know it's a useful tool for looking at parts of the thing, but would that be something that you would recommend? So in an ideal world, you should have the whole colon checked out. So colon cancer can occur on the right side of the colon as well as the left side of the colon. And the use of flexible sigmoidoscopy, which just examines the lower three feet of the colon, falls into the category of something's better than nothing, but it's a compromise exam. And I've seen it described as having a mammogram of one breast. So better than nothing, but you still have a big chance of having a polyp that could turn into cancer.
So one of the other things that commonly patients may see either in an advertisement or they may know somebody that has gotten is this stool test that they can have a stool sample and send it in and it can get run for all these different genes and determine if they have colon cancer. What is this all about? Well, we've talked about flexible sigmoidoscopy screening, colonoscopy screening, and even CT colonography screening. Those are semi-invasive tests. So the other class of screening tests are the non-invasive tests, which involve looking at stool. For a long time, we've been looking at blood and stool, so the hemocult tests, as evidence of a cancer. The hemocult tests are no good at finding polyps, so they will only find a cancer. And the aim is to find a cancer at an early stage before it causes symptoms, and then that may translate into a better chance of being cured. So it's not a preventative test at all. More recently, in the last couple of years, a test has come out, as you referred to, looking at DNA in stool as evidence of the presence of a cancer. That works pretty well. The accuracy of that test is about 92% sensitive, so it's going to find about 92% of cancers that are actually there. But again, it finds cancers. It is a little bit good at finding polyps. It'll find about a half of the serrated polyps, and it may find up to about 70% of the precancerous adenomas, at least the high-risk ones. So it's a reasonable alternative to colonoscopy. If you can't get a good colonoscopy or can't afford it, it's not covered. It's a reasonable alternative. But again, if it's positive, you need a colonoscopy. So... The only single test that will find polyps and cancer and allow you to treat the polyps and prevent cancer is colonoscopy, and that remains the gold standard. There's one thing that's coming that a lot of work's going on now about, and it's called liquid biopsy, which really means looking at DNA and blood. We know that patients with colon cancers have evidence of that in DNA that's made its way into the blood. And this is not ready for prime time yet. But when I recommend to patients that they have another scope in 10 years, I always say to them, you may not need it because we may have a better test then. Let's go back to the colonoscopy itself. As an endoscopist, you go across the colon and you see a polyp. What do you actually do? How are colon polyps managed and what can happen at that colonoscopy? So you see a polyp and you instantly start assessing it and it's almost by instinct that you assess it. So you're thinking to yourself, is this a cancer already? Is it removable? And if it's removable, how should I remove it? So it really depends on the size of the polyp, the location where it is, how the patient's doing at the time, any other risk factors that the patient may have, such as maybe uh, being prone to bleeding or something. And then you set about removing it, because that's basically why you're there. You're there to remove polyps. And so you choose the appropriate instrument and remove the polyp. And that's a painless procedure for the patient, because there are no nerves, no sensory nerves going to the lining of the colon. And are there risks to having that done? Yes, there are risks to pretty much everything we do. The risks of colonoscopy itself are very, very, very low. But the risks of polypectomy specifically, the same risks for any sort of surgery. You may cause bleeding. Bleeding may develop later after the polypectomy, and that risk lasts for about two weeks. And you may make a hole in the colon. Those are the most serious risks. Yeah, and those obviously happen very, very rarely. What about prevention of polyps? Is there anything that you can do to prevent polyps? Is there a diet or a pill or something that you can take to prevent polyp onset? There have been a lot of studies done looking at using medications to cut down the risk of polyps. And here at the clinic, we've been involved in several of them. The first one we looked at was aspirin. 
and aspirin certainly has an effect on the risk for colorectal cancer, and it did seem to have a risk on the incidence and recurrence of these precancerous adenomatous polyps. Calcium also can affect the risk of polyps. It can reduce the risk of polyps. And we know that hormone replacement therapy in women can reduce the risk of colorectal cancer significantly. In general terms, a healthy diet is good. It's a lot harder to prove that because dietary studies are so difficult to do. But avoiding processed meats, avoiding red meat and focusing on fiber and green vegetables and fruits is certainly moving in the right direction, although it's nothing to get too caught up in. James, you were the director of the Weiss Center for many years here at the Cleveland Clinic, one of the world leaders in terms of these hereditary cancer syndromes, and specifically with colorectal cancer and polyposis. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of family history within polyps and kind of go back and touch on that a little bit and maybe some certain types of things that may come up that may run in the family that if you are aware of these things that run in the family that you should know a little bit further about? Sure. So if you think of all the colorectal cancers that are going to happen in the United States, and this year the estimate is about 140,000. So about 5% of those occur in patients who have an inherited syndrome of colorectal cancer. That is, they inherited a single gene mutation from mum or dad, and it's caused their colon to be prone to producing often multiple cancers at often early ages. Sometimes, as you said, lots of polyps, sometimes not. And in that circumstance, Everybody in the family is at risk of inheriting that mutation, and if they get it, they need early checks that could save their lives. Otherwise, they're going to get early cancers, and by the time they're found, they're often too far advanced for treatment. So it's very important to recognize these syndromes when they occur. And the clues are a family history, which includes multiple relatives affected with either polyps or cancer. At a young age, that's the other key. So the average age of colorectal cancer is in the mid-60s, but if you have a relative who's affected under the age of 50, that's a huge red flag. And we refer such patients to our genetic counsellors here. And not everybody has access to a genetic counsellor, but you could certainly have a chat to your family doctor about it. Well, that's incredible insight into the world of colon polyps and about colonoscopy and other things. I'd like to end up with all my guests here on Butts and Guts with a couple of quick hitters. Favorite sport? Rugby. Of course. All blacks? Is that, uh, yeah. yeah. Favorite meal? Steak and chips. And what's the last book that you read? It'll go one day on mortality. Okay. And if you could, tell me a little bit about what you like here about Cleveland. One thing you like here about living in Cleveland. It's become a second home to me. We have adapted and been welcomed and it's really home. And if you could sum up colon polyps in 10 words or less. Get a colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Church, for joining us here on Butts and Guts. And to learn more, download our colonoscopy treatment guide at clevelandclinic.org colonoscopy. And to schedule a colonoscopy here at the Cleveland Clinic, please call 216-444-7000. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.